Well, I'm going to let you guys uh, have a chance to talk to each other for a little bit. Uh, and I want you to turn to the person next to you, or could group up into three people, but I want you to um, share whether you agree or disagree with this statement. Money is the root of all evil. Money is the root of all evil. And so uh, share with the person next to you whether you agree or disagree with that and why. Money is the root of all evil. So what do you think? What are some answers you came up with? Agree or disagree? Money is the root of all evil. How many people agree that it is the root of all evil? Okay. So everyone else disagrees that money is the root of all evil. Okay. So why do you disagree? What are some reasons to disagree? Oh, Maggie's given the definitive answer. Yeah, we, we all know that. Yeah, that's actually, we might think, well, does the Bible say money is the root of all evil? No, it does say the love of money. So it's First Timothy, uh, oops, over here, First Timothy uh, chapter 6, verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And so, yeah, what are some, what is money then? What are some of the answers you came up with? If it's not the root of all evil, what is money? It's a tool. It's a tool, okay. Wow, a lot of consensus this morning. Everyone disagreed. A lot of consensus on it's a tool. Okay, any other things that you see it describe money as? A gift. A gift? Okay. Yeah, a tool, a gift. It can be used for good or evil. Used for good or evil. So it's neutral, but it can be used for evil. It can be used for good, yeah. Yeah? Could be a reward, yeah. Yeah, like it's night when somebody's like, here's $2,000 as a bonus, you're like, Sweet. You're not like, no, no, keep that evil away from me, right? Yeah, it could be a reward for lots of stuff, right? In the movie Hello Dolly, she explains that money is like manure. you got to spread it around, encouraging little okay. things to grow. I like that. Wow. Okay, so money is so manure. So it back into the um, economy instead of hiding it away in a box and hoarding it for the rest of your life. Okay. From Dolly Parton, you're saying. Uh, hello, Dolly. Wait, who's Hello Dolly? I'm like, oh, it's an it's old musical. thing. Okay, <laughs> okay. I'm gonna quote yeah. Dolly Parton. You know what Dolly Parton said once? She said, <laughs> "No, <laughs> spread it around like manure." <laughs> no, but this is, uh, you know, as we go back into Luke, um, we've been. I think this is our four, third or fourth time starting to work through Luke. We're in Luke chapter 16, uh, and this series is called "To Seek and to Save." 
because um, that's what Jesus says when he is talking to some people. He's like, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. And so that's what this series is on. So if you're thinking, oh, what is Jesus about? What is he doing? Why is he saying what he's doing? He's coming to seek and to save the lost. And the Luke is, I mean, calling it um, the gospel according to Luke is appropriate because the word gospel means good news. And we have actually four gospels in the uh, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, the gospel according to John. And it's really these three different perspectives. It's kind of like think of four different news channels reporting on the same event that happened. And they all may have a little bit of different angle on it. And yet it's all the same truth, the same event. And the, when the people in the um, early centuries of the church were looking at, well, which documents about Jesus are authoritative, they looked at, okay, the documents that came from his close, uh, his, 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 what he called his apostles, the original 12 disciples, those documents, uh, those are like the authorized story, the authorized biography of Jesus. What those people are saying, they're with Jesus from his uh, baptism by John the Baptist to his resurrection, they're authoritative witness. Um, so it's like, well, which documents have that? Oh, these four um, have that, uh, bear that, that they're either from one of Jesus' original apostles or from a close associate of theirs. And they didn't decide which books have, had authority, they uh, recognized which books had authority because of the source of where they came from. Uh, and so, but then Luke is a little interesting because he isn't one of the original 12 disciples. He actually comes to know about Jesus later on. But we, when they're deciding which books should be in the Bible, uh, four, it seemed that four was the best way to do it. All four of these are the kind of different angles on Jesus saying the same thing different words, different emphases. And then Luke is uh, in there because he actually goes around and researches and he interviews eyewitnesses of people that met Jesus, talked about his family, people that were healed. He has names and places down. And he says in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, this is what I did. I went and investigated. He's like, he's following Jesus and he's writing to a guy named Theophilus, which is like, is that a real guy? Or is it that, that word means the, Theo, God, Theophilus means love, so God lover. So maybe he's writing to all God lovers, or maybe a guy who is called Theophilus. But he says, what I want to do is give you certainty about the things that you've been taught. And so what I've done is I've gone back, I've interviewed all the people, and here's what I'm writing down of all, what all the people said about Jesus, and he compiles it all into this. And so Luke was talking to the eyewitnesses, interviewing them. And the big message of Luke is that the kingdom of God is coming through Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is coming. And it's, he's in this part of the book that we're in, he's on his way up to Jerusalem, meaning this is the last like two weeks of his life as he's heading to Jerusalem to have uh, basically a showdown with the religious teachers there. And he, when he's going to enter that week, it's called Holy Week in the Christian calendar. And then you have Good Friday where Jesus is crucified and then you have Easter Sunday. And so Jesus right now is heading up to Jerusalem uh, for the Feast of Passover. Lots of other people taking their pilgrimage there for the, one of the festivals every year that people would walk up to Jerusalem. And so he's walking with other people to Jerusalem. But as he's going, he's teaching people and talking to people, telling them the kingdom is coming and you need to, you need to turn from the way you're living and if you want to be a part of it. And in chapters 13 through 17, where we're at, he's answering the question, who's in and who's out? If you want to be part of God's kingdom, which is sometimes called the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, if you want to be part of the good life, life as it's meant to be in God's kingdom, who's in and who's out? And he's saying, these people are out, these people are in. And it's very surprising to people and offensive to people whom Jesus says is in and who is out. It's the opposite of what you would expect. And so he tells people 
there's going to be this great reversal. Like when the kingdom of God comes, when everyone sees like who's in and who's out, everyone's going to be surprised at who is out. And he says the people that are the religious leaders, who are rich, who have money, who have good lives, the powerful people, which you would maybe look at like, well, if anybody should be in, you know, it's like the pastors of the day. Like if anybody should be in, it should be the pastors. They're giving their life to this. They're teaching people. Their, their whole life is about God. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. They're going to be out. And who's going to be in? The poor. People of low social status. Outcasts. Outsiders. Tax collectors. And sinners. Who's going to experience the blessed life, the good life of the kingdom? It's very, Jesus surprises people with his answer. And we'll get more into that as we go in the passage. We've been asking the last couple weeks, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And one of the answers I gave is that it means to follow Jesus into the good life, into life as it's meant to be, life, the life we were made for. And what Jesus is going to identify today is one of the major roadblocks to the good life, and it's money. It's one of the major things that pulls us away from God. And the context of this passage that we're in uh, is chapter 15, verses 1 through 2, uh, is where it starts off, and we're going to be in chapter 16. But basically, he, there's all these people that the religious um, kind of elites would look down on. Why are you hanging out with all these sinners? All these people have messed up their life. All these outcasts. Why are you hanging out with them? And Jesus gives us answer. Luke chapter 15, he tells three parables about things that are lost. And well, the one is that this father has two lost sons. And when his one son comes home that he had run off and spent all his money, and he is coming back dirty and saying, Father, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Just make me a servant in your household, because that will be better than what I was experiencing out there in the world, I wasted all my money and wasted my life. And the father runs out and embraces this son. And Jesus is saying, this is why I'm hanging out with all these no good people that you call sinners, tax collectors, all the people you think are so far from God. It's because the father runs out to embrace them in love when they turn back to him. And so that's the context. It's still in that setting that is uh, Jesus is teaching on here. And so what he basically invites them to is the father has two sons. There's a son that wastes all his money, and he's coming home, and the father runs out and embraces him, says, let's start a party, have a party for this son who's returned. He was lost, but now he's found. I, he's, I thought he was dead, and now he's alive. But then what you find is there's another son who stands outside the party, and he's like, I'm not going in there. And dad comes out and says, why aren't, why aren't you joining? He says, this son of yours wasted all your money on prostitutes and wild living, and then he comes back here, and you throw him a party? And then the father says it is right for us to celebrate that he's returned. And he wants his other son to join the party. And the question is, will he? Will he come into the party? And so Jesus is like, all these people are around me. They're all getting in on the kingdom, getting in on life as it's meant to be. And you guys are grumpy watching it, saying, why are you hanging out with them? And his invitation is, will you come and join the party that God is throwing, of bringing people into his kingdom? And so the first chunk we'll look at it is chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. And this he says to his disciples. So he's telling these stories of lostness to the religious teachers who are criticizing him. And then he turns to his disciples in chapter 16, verse 1. It says, He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you no long, can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much money do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. 
And he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, if you're reading that and you're like, that's a little weird. This is one of the most confusing parables that Jesus tells, and there's a lot of debate about what it means. Um, So don't take this as the definitive answer, but this is how I'm understanding it. It's he's saying, okay, this is how the sons of people in the world work, that there's this guy, there's this dishonest manager, manager, and he sees, I'm about to be out of home and job. He probably lives with his boss, like he's kind of part of his household, and he's, I'm about to be out of house and home, so how can I use what I have right now to create friends for myself so they'll welcome me into their homes after I lose my job, and they'll be like, well, you cut me a deal when you're his manager, and so now I'm good with hiring you as my manager now, and so he uses unrighteous wealth or earthly wealth um, to make friends for himself who will welcome him when he loses his position. And Jesus, his point he's saying is, okay, the sons of light, that's who you are, you should use your earthly resources to make friends with the poor so that when it fails you, they'll welcome you into the kingdom when the great reversal happens. And so he's saying to people who have money, if you want to be welcomed into God's kingdom, when you die and your money doesn't help you, right now you should be using money to help those who are poor, who are these outsiders, these people you're rejecting, using money to help them so that when the great reversal happens and they find themselves in God's kingdom, they're welcoming you, in, welcoming you into it because you have used your money in God's ways. And then he says in chapter 16, verses 10 through 13, he continues, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one uh, and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So he's saying if you have these earthly resources, earthly money, earthly wealth, earthly possessions, earthly status and position, and if you're not going to use that faithfully, how can you be expected to be welcomed into God's kingdom to get eternal riches and heavenly riches? And he says you can only have one master. It's God or money. There's no in-between. You can only serve one of them. It's one or the other. And so what you do with your resources reveals your master whom you're serving. And in doing that, you're choosing which kingdom you're going to be a part of. And hopefully if that first parable didn't Make, still doesn't make total sense. Hopefully as we go through the rest of the passage, it'll start making more sense. And then we're given this little note in chapter 16, verse 14. Uh, Luke gives us this note. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed them. And then Jesus' response is in verse 15. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among, among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And so he says, you're justifying yourselves. How, how are they justifying themselves? Like, uh, wh- what exactly are they doing? Well, they could be justifying themselves by saying, well, I am honoring God with my money. I am using my earthly resources in the way God wants me to. Like, I tithe, you know, I give the certain percentage of my, my resources that I'm supposed to give, even down to the smallest spice. Like, when I get spices, I tithe a tenth of, tenth, tenth of it to 
God. You could also say we're also giving money to the poor. Alms giving, big thing in the first century is giving to the poor, giving alms. And so like, yeah, we're, we're tithing, we're giving that, we're doing our duty to the poor. And he could say you might be justifying yourself uh, in that way, saying we're using our money right. But they could also defend themselves by saying, well, I'm giving my tenth, but why would I give more to the poor? Like, I've earned this money, I've worked for it, God's obviously blessed me uh, because I've worked hard, I've lived a good life, and now God has blessed me with this, so why now should I give money to somebody who's lived foolishly? Like, I'm giving the amount, and so they could kind of defend themselves, justify themselves in that, in that way. Um, they don't deserve what, they deserve what they have, and I deserve what I had. But he says, God knows your hearts. And earlier he said in chapter 11, you're cleaning the outside of the cup, of your life, but on the inside you're full of greed and wickedness. And so he's like, you're doing these things on the outside that make you look clean, but on the inside you're actually greedy. And he says this phrase, but uh, that it's um, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And so he could be saying to them, well, maybe you know when people see what you're doing, they're impressed. Like, well, gosh, man, they have this, this money, so they're able to help the poor. They're able to give to God's temple, you know, whatever else. Um, but what is God seeing? He says they're see he's seeing an abomination, which you might be like, that's kind of a, you know, what are we talking about, the Hulk's enemy in, anybody? Yeah. <laughs> abomination, is it? Anyway, it's Marvel. Um, but what is an abomination? This is a hard blow to them because it's a word used in the Old Testament, and they would have had the parts of the Old Testament that this word occurs in memorized. They would know what does it mean that Jesus is saying he sees an abomination um, and so, Old Testament, in general, an abomination uh, can refer to idolatry in general, meaning worshiping something other than God. Jesus, we just saw him say, God or money, worshiping something other than God. But in particular, uh, an abomination can refer to immoral financial dealings. And we saw that he called, they're called lovers of money. And so, sure, they tithe, but they, Jesus says in chapter 11, they neglect the justice and the love of God. And he says... You aren't giving God your heart. You're not giving from your heart. You're doing these things on the external. And they enjoy seats of honor and recognition in public. But what, what does God see? God is disgusted. This is an abomination, the way you're living. And you might be like, wait, wait a second. <laughs> this is confusing, and, we'll, and we're, we'll get deeper into it. And God, Jesus is saying it's all a show to justify yourselves, to feel like you've done the right thing, so like kind of God's off your back. You don't feel guilty. I've done my duty. I've given to the poor. I've given to the temple and whatever else. And they feel like, you know, I've done the right thing, so now I'm good with God. And Jesus says, uh, in verse 16 and 17, he says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And everyone forces his way into it, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And so he's kind of given this sequence. Okay, Old Testament, law and prophets. And then there was John preaching, the Messiah is coming, Jesus is coming, the King is coming. And now Jesus is preaching the good news of the kingdom, but, and now, you know, there's another little interpretation. It said, um, everyone forces his way into it. My Bible has a little note that says, everyone is forcefully urged into it. I think that's a better sense of what Jesus is doing. I, it, yeah, there was the law and the prophets, but now it's the good news of the kingdom, and you're being forcefully urged to get in on it. And he, but he's also saying, that doesn't take away the law and the prophets. They are going to be your judge. You know what it says about how to use your money, about how to give it and use it. And another thing that was called an abomination in uh, the Old Testament was remarrying a divorced woman. And that explains what he says in verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife marries another, commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And perhaps as 
you read that, you're thinking, I need to talk to someone a little more about that. I don't have time to go de- in depth into that, but if you need to, would like to talk more about that verse and what it might mean for your life, um, please uh, let me know. But the reason that comes up is because two things, things are called an abomination in the Old Testament. One was committing adultery. One was using your money in, to not help people. And so that's what Jesus is saying. Look, the law is going to be your judge. And he tells this very vivid parallel, par- parable um, starting in verse 19. There's a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So contrast between these two people, rich man, and a, who's not given a name, so it's like, well, that could, be, that could be any of us. And Lazarus, who is given a name. And the Pharisees are kind of like Job's friends in the old Pharisees, or the religious teachers that are criticizing Jesus for the people he's hanging around with. And they're a little bit like Job's friends in the Old Testament. The man Job got all these sores on his body, and then his friends come to comfort him. He loses family, money, property, and all his friends come to comfort him. He has these sores. And basically they say, okay, Job, what'd you do wrong? <laughs> Must have done something wrong for all this bad stuff to have happened to you. What'd you do wrong? Lazarus has sores. Pharisees, religious leaders, are looking at poor people like Lazarus with sores, nothing to eat, laying around. They must have done something wrong with their life to get in this position. God is penalizing them. And really, you know, the rich man in the story might have been doing what's required, might have been giving his tithes, might have been giving to the poor, and yet he's sitting inside, enjoying his home, enjoying his food, while there's a man at his gate dying with dogs licking his sores. And so you could think of it in the story uh, of Luke 15, where the younger brother comes home, and the father welcomes him, these tax collectors, these sinners, these poor people that are turning back to God, and God welcomes them, and he's saying, look, you're enjoying all your stuff while these poor people, these tax collectors and sinners, saying to these religious people, uh, that are like, Jesus, why are you hanging out with them? He's saying, the picture is, you're sitting in your happy position with your home and your status and your money, watching all these younger brothers die outside of your gate, and you don't care. You're just enjoying it. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm representing God's heart to them. And it's an abomination, he says, that you aren't serving them physically, and you're not serving them spiritually. But in the end, there'll be a reversal. And he says, you know, if even somebody coming back from the dead, it won't change anybody's mind if they're not listening to God's word and the law and the prophets. He's saying it's all there. You already know how you should be living. Someone coming back from the dead isn't going to change that. And 
health, the health of the nation of Israel was often measured by how they treated the poor, the poor, the orphan, the widow, people who are more vulnerable. Like, are they ignoring them? And the prophets would come and say, look, you guys, you're getting off track here. Look, we're not taking care of the most vulnerable and hurting and needy people in our society. And that was always a measure of the health of the nation of Israel. As we consider, well, okay, that's a lot of stuff. We're covering a, a lot of passage. And I think it actually helps to cover these big chunks where, you know, that very first parable, we could have just sat there for like, you know, 45 minutes talking about it. But actually, I think getting this big chunk of what Jesus is saying here in this whole conversation helps us. And so we're going to jump down. Uh, actually, so 17, chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. This is still the same discussion. Pharisees are criticizing him. Jesus responds with three parables. He teaches his disciples, look, this is how you should use your wealth so that you're welcomed by the poor into God's kingdom. The Pharisees then are like ridiculing him. So he responds to them. And now he goes back to his disciples in 17 verse 1. And there's three, uh, there's really three things he tells us too. But I want to jump down to the third thing. Chapter 17 verses 7 through 10. I'm going to read that. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline a table? Will you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. And so Jesus is trying to counter the mindset of the Pharisees the religious leaders, the people are kind of looking down on these people who have made a mess of their life. All these sinners, they deserve what they're getting. He's trying to critique them, and he's saying, does the servant, after serving his master, expect the master to serve him or to get a thank you? No, we're, we're unworthy servants. And he's saying, that should, so he's saying, here's for disciples, here's one attitude to avoid. Don't act like God owes you. Don't act like God owes you. That's the Pharisee's mindset. We've done good, lived a good life, and now God owes us. Don't act like God owes you. Because we're told God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And our service to God does not put God in our debt. And so with that in mind, don't act like God owes you. Let's just back up to uh, chapter 17, verses 1 through 2. So this is turning back to the disciples. He said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So the first thing of how to not have an attitude like the Pharisees is don't act like God owes you. The second is don't exclude the little ones from the kingdom. And you might think like, okay, little ones, that meaning like little kids? Um, but what I think he's referring to here is all those people that the religious teachers look down on I think they're better than these little people, these poor people, tax collectors, sinners, people, prostitutes, people who've made a mess of their lives, who've made wrong decisions, and now they find themselves in a hole. Don't look down on these little ones. Don't exclude them from the kingdom. Basically saying, God doesn't love people like you. The kingdom isn't a place for you. God doesn't love people like you. And he says it's going to cause them to sin. And if you would go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, the very first sin that occurred came because of the lie, God doesn't really love you. So you little ones, like Jesus says, don't be giving them the message that God doesn't love you. God isn't interested in you. You've messed up too bad. You're too dirty. You're too unclean. 
God doesn't care about you. He says that's going to lead them to sin because they're going to be dejected, turned from God. Yeah, well, if God doesn't have anything to do with me, I won't have anything to do with him. And it's, these are little ones or people who are easy to look down on, to treat as lesser, to the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And it's a broad category of not just people who don't have money, but anybody who has this low social status in that day, people that are just easy to look down on. And so he's saying, uh, don't be older brothers who refuse to welcome the younger, your little brothers, into the kingdom. Don't be these older brothers that say, well, my life is together and God has blessed me because I've done it all right. Like, I haven't made dumb choices. I've saved my money. I went to college. I did this and that. Don't be that person who thinks God owes me. I got this from God because he owes me. And I'm going to look down on everybody else who hasn't had that same experience in life. Don't be rich men who leave the little ones outside to die. And Jesus says it would be better for a millstone to be hung around your neck, you know, big old stones like mill flour and whatnot, just hang it around your neck and throw you in the sea. He will not stand for it. Jesus is like, it's not just like, you know, try, try not. He's like, no, it will be better for you if you're thrown in the sea and drowned. Jesus is like, I will not stand for this. He's serious. And so we can ask ourselves, are we withholding our resources, our money, our time, our attention, our skills from people that we consider undeserving of them? We think they're small, not worth our resources. When we could think, well, what I have justifies me. It shows I've done well. I've made good choices in life. I've worked hard. And so, like, that shows that I've lived a good life for God. And then we can also be like, well, those people really don't deserve my money. I give them, I give, you know, I give an amount I'm supposed to. I, you know, every once in a while I'll throw money in a, somebody asking for it on the street. But, like, they don't really deserve it all. And so I'm justified in not giving it. What are they going to spend it on anyway? Like, is it, who, it could be something dumb they're going to spend it on. I'm going to keep it for myself. We think it's ours. We think that others are lazy and foolish, and that's why they're in their situation. But the reality is that we have way more than we need most of the time. And then we have this thing that happens, you've heard the term lifestyle creep, that it's like you're at a certain lifestyle, I don't know, I'm just going to throw a number out. You're making 20000 and I remember in college, like when, when I graduated from college and we were interning with a campus ministry, it was like, I think it was like around 20000 We we were making. It was like, oh my gosh, this is like amazing. Um, I'm like, buy a book a month or something. This is awesome. And I remember when we got, we're getting our first tax return when I was in seminary. So we weren't making very much. and It was like $2,000 or something. We were like, what? Katie called her sister who's a tax accountant. And we're like, is this right? I feel like we did something wrong. Like, how do we get this much back? And her sister was like, um, that's not that much money, Katie. But to us, it was like, this is crazy. This is like, you know, three months rent or something. But, um, but lifestyle creep is like, I, would, I learned how to live with 20000 and now I'm making 30000 and my lifestyle just, it just slowly keeps creeping up. And we think, oh, when I make this much money, then I'll be good, and the lifestyle just creeps up. We just add more. Oh, I'll get a little more coffee. I'll have Netflix and Amazon Prime. You know, we just keep creeping up and creeping up. And as our income cre- increases, so does our lifestyle. And there was this, I don't know, where Katie and her cohorts talking about this one time, um, that an article was... If you ask people, how much money do, would someone have to make to be considered rich? And people all answer basically double what they make. Somebody's making 40000 What? What? Who? Who's rich? Who do you consider rich? Someone making 80000 Somebody making 80000 says someone who's rich, someone who makes 160000 It's always like double. It just keeps going and going and going. And just to show you that we have way more than we need, Katie and I have been doing this little exercise that every day this month, 
and for however long, we're getting rid of 10 things in our house a day. And so as the 28th, if you do the math, we've gotten rid of 280 things. And sometimes this could be like, oh, here's, an, here's lotion we don't want to use anymore. It could be little things. Sometimes they're bigger things. 280 things we've gotten rid of since this new year. And if you go in our house, you would not be able to tell. <laughs> it's just the reality. Like, we have so much stuff. We're like getting, there's some portions of our house that bigger things got rid of or more things in one area. But if you walk in our house, you're going to be like, wow, Mitch and Katie, they're doing the minimalist thing, huh? Like, they got like nothing in here. No, you don't even notice. We have so much stuff. And our lifestyle just creeps up. And the second thing is we have way more than we, we need and we don't deserve it. That God is generous. That when we are given stuff, we are unworthy servants who have received it. And there's a story, um, I don't know where I heard it from. It's a pastor lived like 100 or 200 years ago called Charles Spurgeon. And one time somebody saw him, he, and some of his habits were he liked to smoke cigars and he have a drink of some sort of alcohol, you know, at night or whatever. So he smoked and, smoked and drank. He was a very famous pastor, good pastor, and a great preacher. He's called the Prince of Preachers, actually. And one time somebody saw him giving money uh, to a poor person on the street. And the person said, well, aren't you afraid he's just going to go use that on smoking and drinking? And Spurgeon said, if I keep it, that's what I'm going to use it on. <laughs> and so I think sometimes we're like, they're deserving all my money because they're not going to use it in a good way. And it's like, well, I'm not using all my money in a good way. Like, I go through the Taco Bell drive-thru. Like, is that using my money in a good way? Or I buy, you know, a $6 drink at Starbucks. Like, is that using my money in a good way? And we so often think they're not deserving of it. I am because I'm going to use it in a really good way. No. Like we're using our money foolishly. And the last thing he says, don't refuse to forgive sinners. Verses 3 and 4. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? Oh, sorry. That's chapter 16. Chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. Pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Don't be older brothers who, when their younger brothers repent, refuse to forgive them and welcome them. Don't refuse to forgive sinners that they're undeserving. And so we can ask, am I withholding my resources from other people? Or am I withholding forgiveness from other people? The disciples respond in verses 5 and 6, and this is the part we'll end on. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like the grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. The disciples are understanding the danger and the difficulty of what Jesus is saying. That if you're going to be a person who's holding all your resources for yourself, withholding, giving to people, and withholding forgiveness, he's saying, you are in, you're in trouble. And if, you, if we're really honest, we should be like, that is so hard, Jesus. I so often withhold my forgiveness. I so often withhold resources. I so often use it all on myself. And if we start, the disciples are looking internally and they're being, the standard you just set up, Jesus, increase our faith, help us to trust you more so we can actually live this way, so we can actually forgive. Seven times in a day, can you, can you imagine? It's not even like that big of a number, but can you imagine in one day, one person doing the same hurtful thing to you seven times and forgiving them every single time? And there's another spot where Jesus says up to 77 times. And it's like, this is a crazy number. Like, even if you're married, you, it's hard to get up to 70, doing the same thing 77 times to somebody in, in a year. It's like, 
astounding. He's like, every time, forgive them. And it's like, I don't know if I can do this, Jesus. And the disciples are feeling it. And like, you're saying we need to use our resources and give them away to help people. Like, but Jesus, I, I can see how big of a grip it has on my heart. And they're seeing it. Increase our faith, please. I can't do this on my own. And why faith? It's because you need trust to let go of your resources and to let go of revenge. And there's this great quote by a guy, I think it was about 200 years ago, 16th or 17th century. He had this sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Expulsive is like getting something out of somewhere. And he said, The love of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. But may it not be supplanted by the love of that which is more worthy than itself. He says, The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. So how do we stop being lovers of money? Lovers of money, stuff, TV, vacations, work, retirement, nice clothes, big houses, cool gadgets. How do we stop loving that stuff? It's the only way is that a, if a greater love replaces it. If a greater love takes its place. And us recognizing we were spiritually poor, bankrupt, having nothing to offer to God. Nothing we can bring to God to say, I deserve your love. I deserve your kingdom. And yet, at the same time, we were stingy, selfish, entitled, self-righteous, unforgiving. And then Jesus paid our debt. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for his sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So we failed to use our resources generously, and yet Jesus has used his resources generously on our behalf to pay for our failure, to pay for our stinginess, our self-centeredness of holding it all for ourselves. And that releases us from the power of money because it actually gives us what we want from money. Why do we have such a hard time giving money away? It's because money is more than money to us. It's identity, it's security, it's status, it's satisfaction. I want my money to buy my Taco Bell. I want my money to save in the bank for a rainy day. I want my money to have a better house to have. For me, it's like, well, am I use, I'm using my money to get weeds out of my lawn because that's some sort of value to me. And yet there's people dying without food. Like, what, what is going on here with these two things? And so we want money because it gives us all those things. And Jesus, we need Jesus to give us what we are looking to get from money. And so God doesn't owe us. We're actually the little ones that God doesn't despise, that God doesn't reject, doesn't exclude, but welcomes. We're the sinner so that he doesn't reject, but forgives so humble faith is coming to God with empty but open hands just to receive it. And look what he says. If you have just this little speck of faith, God can use it exponentially. That there's something crazy he can do with it. And I think sometimes you know, people say, I don't like the church because they just want my money. The reality is that Jesus does not want your money. He wants you. Jesus doesn't want more of your money from you. He wants more for you. And so he wants to free you from the destruction that money gives, put, brings into your life to free us from the devastating effects of loving money more than God. When we make it our master, placing our trust and hope in it to give us the good life that Jesus wants to offer us. So as we, this year, seek to become a campfire of God's love where we are inviting those who are lost to warm themselves by the fire of God's love for them, we become people who are generous, who are saying, I won't withhold forgiveness. I'm not going to withhold my resources either.
Let's pray. Father, you know better than any of us how tight a grip money can tend to have on us. So God, would you free us from it by giving us a love that is way better than money, that giving us your son who treats us far better than our money does and gives us what we really wanted from it. In your son's name we pray. Amen.